0: Welcome to the In Search For More podcast, where guests join me in my search for more. More from myself, and more from life. I'm your host, Ellie Nash. I sit down, sometimes with one person, and often with a panel, to talk about various topics I am interested in learning more about. Earlier this week, I sat down with Yocheved Seidoff, the founder of Lamplighters Yeshiva, a Jewish day school in Brooklyn that started about 10 years ago. And a couple years into it, I got very involved. Perhaps I should add the disclaimer that this episode may be more relevant for people who are familiar with the school and familiar with the community, but there are certain dynamics that may be interesting to a listener who is not familiar with it as well. I'm not sure. If you are one of those, feel free to let me know if you found this episode interesting and you did not know who Lamplighters was. The community I grew up in, in Crown Heights, it's a very Hasidic community, a large influence from a Russian town called Lubavitch. The Chabad community is also known as the Lubavitch community. And a lot of the way things are done are the way things were done then. One of those areas that you see it most pronounced is in the schooling. So, for example, the school I went to, uh, the student-teacher ratio was anywhere between 25 and 35 students to one, sitting in front of a, a you know desk facing all the, the students with a blackboard, behind the teacher, and using a lot of... You know, reading from books together and the like. As we get old, got older, it turned into partnership learning. So you'd sit and learn, which was actually very um, interesting. And I found that very b- beneficial to people uh, sitting in partnership and working through a text together. But the teacher environment, not only was it the ratio, but the, everything, the books that were used, the technology that was not used, all of that seemed to me to be very influenced by the way things were and a sacredness attached to it that I didn't think really belonged. And uh, here was a school uh, that sought to challenge that in the community. They were very heavily Montessori-inspired. They believed strongly. Different students needed to be taught differently, and the school's job was not to have a one-size-fits-all approach, but to really cater to each student. And while that sounds wonderful, this was not only revolutionary in a Hasidic community, but... Uh, For many people, it was dangerous, it was different, and there was a lot of criticism directed at the school towards the beginning. Uh, Yochavet Seidov nevertheless took the plunge, got a lot of heat early on. When I saw the school and I visited for the first time in 2012, I was impressed and I also felt like, wow, how cool would it have been if this was my schooling when I was a child? And here is my community bringing that back and being one of the most orthodox communities in America, I knew that if a school was successful here, it could succeed in many areas. A couple of months ago, maybe even shorter than that, the school made the decision that it will not be reopening for next year. And it's a pretty big deal for me, a huge deal for Yocheved, and I think for the larger community. And what it means. And I wanted to sit down with Yocheved to process it for myself and also to hear what her thoughts are. This is a confusing thing. It was a school that no one thought would survive, that lasted for 10 years, inspired schools across the country, across the world for that matter. And it's closing. Is this a success? Is it a failure? Is it a combination of the two? Are there lessons learned, emotions felt? What do we do with this? And Yocheved and I sat down to discuss just that. Uh, here's that episode, and I'll see you on the other side.
1: A Lamplighters is a school, or was a school, founded it 2010, 2009, 2009, 2010. I got involved in 2012. So it was a Jewish Montessori school, started in Crown Heights, which is a very Orthodox Jewish community, and in many Orthodox Jewish communities, the schools look no different than they did in Russia two, three hundred years ago. So uh, it is a very ambitious project to try to start a school that looks like that in Orthodox Jewish community. There's a lot of value in everyone looking the same and acting the same and being the same. And for someone to go outside of the box and something like education, is extremely, extremely challenging, extremely, extremely difficult. And when Yocheva did that, it was met with, to put it nicely, a massive amount of questions, but for some, was much more than that. It was dismissal. They saw it as threatening. They saw it as dangerous. And many thought a school like this could never exist in a community like Crown Heights. Despite that, the school lasted until now, as it's only now that the school is, has decided not to open its doors next year. So hopefully that's enough background for those about the school and my own involvement, I grew up in Crown Heights, and to see a school like that start up was really cool and nifty. And as I mentioned to Yocheved, I had happened to take a tour of a Montessori school several weeks before Yocheved's first email to me. So my own involvement when I saw that a Montessori school was starting up in Crown Heights, I was extremely inspired. Like I mentioned, I had seen a Montessori school, non-Jewish, several weeks before by happenstance. It was a business group that I was a part of, and one of the guys had started a Montessori school, and he was hosting the business meeting that month. And he asked me if I would like to see the school. And I did. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. And the thought went through my head was, how cool would it be if I grew up in a school like that? Oh, it can never happen. And then only a few weeks later, I get a message from Yocheved saying that she had started a Jewish Montessori school. At the time, there was only, I think, eight or ten families. It was very, very small. So it hadn't made it to my radar until then. Um, I went all in on the school, both monetarily and with my time. It's a pretty big deal that it's closing. I've been not only on the board, but I've been one of the main donors for a bunch of years. So to uh, see a project like this close is a big deal. And we figured it would be worth a discussion between Yocheved and I, just to, to process to process some of what um, I guess we haven't processed for this. It's very, very fresh. The school was doing liquidations on uh, stuff as recently as last week. So I imagine it's much more raw for Yocheved than it is for me. So before I jump in, I want to say that the reason for me for this conversation is A, I'd love the opportunity to process it. And that doesn't always have to be done in public, right? You have it and I can just have a conversation. But I think that education is so important everywhere, and especially in the Jewish community, it's a major focus. And I'm sure that there's a lot that others can learn from this spectacular success or failure. I'm not quite sure yet. We'll hopefully get to that through the, the conversation. Of course, a disclaimer, this is only two people's perspectives. Um, no doubt many others will not only have their own, but think ours is wrong or outrageous. So be it. Then I'm talking about people involved with the school. So that's what this is. What this isn't is blaming anyone or airing dirty laundry or throwing anyone under the bus. At most, I'll focus where I could take responsibility here, but even that sounds like blame, and I probably won't go there too much. So, you know, I went back to the first email you sent me when you introduced yourself to me, and I wanted to read a snippet of it. You wrote, in the coming year, we will create a training program for Jewish teachers in Montessori education, the first of its kind nationwide. Our school will become a model school of how Hasidic, Alp Darko education can look, with professional trained teachers, and students with a passion for learning. Finally, Crown Heights will receive positive attention for the educational breakthroughs it will be making. Finally, our children will get what they deserve from a young age when they are innocent and excited to learn. I am requesting your help in partnership with furthering this important project to revolutionize Jewish education. So in one word, you came to me with a specific pitch. Do you think it was accomplished?
2: Yeah, I actually do. I actually do. I think in our decade of existence... We did do those things. We did create a training center. We did create a monastery school. We did make Crown Heights a place where people from all backgrounds, Jewish, not jewish professionals, educators, parents, came to visit, to learn with us and from us. And I think from the beginning, Lamplaters was not just about a school per se. I mean, I'm not an educator. I didn't come into this as a teacher or a school administrator. I came in as a kind of crazy parent and dreamer, really. And that's the founding families were all that. We were crazy dreamers. And it was really about changing consciousness. The school was just a vehicle to do that. Yeah, I think we were successful.
1: Are you curious what I would say to that? Tell me. (laughs) (laughs) I would say the same. You know, if, if you break it down, those two things, Crown Heights received a ton of positive attention for Lamplighters, the amount of tours that went on there and the amount of people who reached out to me and said, hey, I see you support Lamplighters and I'm opening a similar school. I was inspired by Lamplighters, whether it was in Boca or Israel or in some of the flyover states. Part of my thought process when I got involved was that if a school like Crown Heights could have a Montessori school and it would be successful there, there would be one of those the um, Homer, I think they call it, right? If if, uh, if Crown Heights can do it, we can do it anywhere. So I think it definitely did that. And a lot of people asked me over the last couple of years, because Lamplighters has been struggling for the last two years or so, why I'm still involved. And I said that the one with everything going on, the one thing it has is that the kids love coming to school. And that's something I noticed whenever I visited. And that's something I noticed from the parents. To a lot of parents, called me with complaints about the school at different points at point in time, and I said, "Why do you send your Why do you send your kid there?" So my kid loves going to school. I hated going to school, and I love it. And this was something that I heard from most. Obviously, no school has all, but when you know you said that, finally, our children will get what they deserve from a young age when they're innocent and excited to learn. And I think that you you guys did a really good job of keeping that excitement and happiness up. And my thought process was is that if we have that then that seems like the hardest thing to do, to get kids excited about school. The other part should be easier. Some of it happened, some of it didn't, regardless it's closing. Jochevin, I have a question for you. Someone famous and probably really smart once said, success is going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. You've been through a ton at Lamplighters. This is hardly the worst. Do you agree with that statement? And if so, have you lost enthusiasm?
2: I don't know if enthusiasm is the right word. I think conviction is a better
1: word. Conviction.
2: I think... When we started, there was almost like a a hyperactive enthusiasm in a sense. I think that people think entrepreneurs try to create the impossible. I think it's not like that. I think you actually see what's possible. It's so clear to you that it's possible and you just go for it. And that's what it was like from the beginning. It was a sense of this is totally possible. We can change the paradigm. We can create a school and children, like you said, feel like they're at home, it's innovative, it's progressive, it's child-centered. And there were moments of real euphoria. I think enthusiasm is a light word. But what kept me through was less the enthusiasm and more just the like, conviction,
1: the commitment. The conviction that what?
2: This is needed and possible, but it's addressing a real profound pain and that it's also bringing a real profound hope. And that both those. So, things, which
1: part of the conviction is no longer there?
2: You're asking why? Why we're closing?
1: No, I'm saying what you. I asked you if you lost enthusiasm, and you said no. You lost conviction. So you said conviction oh, that it's possible oh, and that it's needed.
2: No, so I don't think I lost conviction. I do think I, I was saying that I think going from failure to failure, it's conviction that keeps us in the loop as opposed to enthusiasm. Whether I lost enthusiasm. Okay. I I don't know if enthusiasm is the right word. I think I came to a point where I was part of such an incredible group of people who were so committed, and it just got to a point where it felt too hard, and what it would take to turn it around felt to me um, keeping a certain dynamic, which was no longer healthy to me or my family anymore. I came to a point where I was just like, I can't carry this thing any longer, and really no organization had should be carried in a sense by few. And I'm not saying that there weren't so many committed people who were carrying it, but it started to feel like we had hit a point of no return in a sense. And it was actually a really, really hard moment. There was two things that happened concurrently for me. One was an awareness that I wanted my legacy to be Lamplighters established in a big, beautiful building, hailed across the country or world, and that I would sort of pass the baton in a certain sense to somebody else. And even having that awareness was a moment for me because at some point I never imagined my life beyond Lamplighters. And there was a moment where I realized the kind of work that we needed to do, there was a point where we needed some real restructuring. Our budget was totally out of whack. Um, we had to make some really, really painful decisions. I was too attached to the thing. I'm not a restructuring expert. You know, I could have, that's not my thing. And I realized at that moment that I would almost have to step aside, in a sense, to let that, that important work happen. I don't think it was a loss of enthusiasm. I think it was a clear awareness.
1: Well, when, when you started the school, you had mentioned that you did it for uh, one of your children, I believe your son, right?
2: Yeah, my son, Yeah.
1: And he graduated this year, so.
2: He did, he did, he did.
1: (laughs) So so I guess you're done, the goal is done. I just wish I knew that at the beginning. No, I guess.
2: (laughs) No, you know what? I did do it for my son, but I also really did it for me. That's the real truth. (laughs) I really did it for, I did it for like the girl I was when I was a kid. You know, what I wished I had, what I think we all wish we had in a certain way. I think my son was, you know, it's the kind of unconditional love that you have that's, makes you willing to do something bold in that sense. It ultimately wasn't just for him. And I actually think releasing that narrative at a certain point was really important for myself and my family. It's a lot of pressure to feel like someone started a school for you.
1: <laughs> right hear, for you. Uh, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. A lot of pressure on your son. You've been called, um, you've actually, even by yourself, you've been called, now I th- think you've called yourself a crazy dreamer, right? You and the other parents. I've heard visionary, revolutionary. Are you still all of those things? I hope so. Or did this experience knock some of that out of you? No, I
2: still feel like I'm very much that person. Sometimes I feel scared whether I was like a one hit wonder and what's next for me. I have learned so much in the past 10 years in this this role. And so my perspective in general of the balance between dreaming and doing has shifted in a sense. You know, I... I'm happy that the person who I was 10 years ago did what I did. I mean, I've said this to you before, if I had a spreadsheet 10 years ago, I never would have started the school, right?
1: <laughs> I, I, th- I say the same thing about myself. If I understood what it took to run a business when I first started one, I never would have started it.
2: Right. It's like you're blinded somehow, Right.
1: In, a, in possibly a good way. That's why I wonder if the experience is a good thing. Are we helping people get like this this experience? Are you better equipped now to run a school than you were 10, 11 years ago when you were naive? You probably didn't even understand what the word deficit meant. I saw in one of the first emails, you know, you were mentioning needing $100,000 to run, get through the school year. I mean, you wish you had a deficit of $100,000 you were working.
2: I mean, at some point, we need 120 a month. Yeah, I'm I'm way better equipped to open a school right now. I've learned a lot. Um, I think even even just over the years, we learned a lot. You know, it's not like nothing shifted over the past 10 years. There was lots of moments of learning. But I think that there's like a it's like a recipe, right? You need like just the right amount of like starry eyed dreamer, just the right amount of dated. Just the right amount of skeptic. And you, you need all those things in a mix. And so sometimes that mix could be just having the right team where you have that person on the team who's just like, no, we are doing this. Like, what do you mean we need a space in a week and a half? We'll find a space. Like it's and then you need that person who's like, wait, one second. We need a three-year plan. Even if we're not going to stick to it, we have to have the discipline of having, looking out three years from now, what does the budget look like? What does the admissions look like? What's the staffing look like? What's the space needs? And and if you don't have the team, then you have to find that in yourself. The challenge is that's usually a hard combination to find and, and that balance is usually out of whack. I think that that discipline, that usually you learn from, Failure, I'm going to say failure, because is what helps us get it right,
1: you know? Looking back at it, do you feel like uh, maybe you should have stepped aside sooner? That's a good question.
2: Um, maybe. I definitely think of certain turning points that I wish I was better at having boundaries. I wish I was less focused on pleasing or protecting and willing to make tough decisions. Do I think that I could have stepped down sooner Not necessarily. I think I I wish I would have learned certain lessons sooner and would have had the strength to act out on them. I think that as much as we talk about good business and obviously there's good business in running a school, we're people first and foremost, right? Like you were in Vistage, you, know, you mm-hmm. turned, me, turned me on to Vistage. I was in Vistage for three years, the CEO coaching group. Okay, you talk about your business stuff, but mostly it's like the stuff we bring to the table as people,
1: right? 100%. Yeah, from the outside looking in as much as I was outside, I think that, you know, falling in love with a school in that way and being almost a parent to the school, and sometimes that can turn into protecting it too much from itself. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I saw some of that. A fair amount of saving in, in I think it's in CODA, Codependence Anonymous, they say when when dealing with an addict, right? Someone who's codependent when dealing with an addict, as much as possible, let the natural course of things play out so that the consequences are, are realized. Obviously, sometimes you can lean in and help and assist, but if it's too many times preventing what the natural course will result in. All it's doing is enabling. And I, I think there was a fair amount of, of that. It comes from a good place, obviously, in wanting to protect the child. But at the same point in time, the, it ends up enabling the child. And then at some point in time, the guy's 26 years old and wonders why not everyone teaches, treats him like his mama.
2: I feel that sort of describes like a bit of your journey, at least how it looked like to me as someone who raised money from you for quite a few years of like an investment that at some point felt like I'm not like I'm not going to save this organization. Like I will I will support I will stay in the pocket, but I'm not going to be a savior in a sense. And I, I wonder if that was like a conscious choice that you made.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I don't know if savior as much as enabler, but it got to the point where I wondered whether I was through my support allowing dysfunction to sit there. Right? For you get one too many calls from a school that I need you to make payroll. That's a problem. You know, I think Shimshun Stock was a well known fundraiser. I was fundraising a couple months before Rosh Hashanah, and he had mentioned that you know needing a certain amount of money for the holidays, and the person resp- the person he was. Uh, collecting from said, Oh, for Rosh Hashanah. And he said, No, I'm not collecting for Rosh Hashanah. Obviously, Rosh Hashanah, I'm sorted out. I know it's coming. It's in two months. I'm talking about the next holiday. And I don't know if that's a true story or not, but the idea is there. It's sometimes uh, planned emergencies. Once, twice, it makes sense, but it got to the point where, you know, four, five, six payrolls in a row saying, hey, if we don't get a donation, we're not going to be able to make payroll. And they say, so then don't make payroll. Maybe the the payroll is too high.
2: Right. Well, yeah. I mean, I think like what you were saying about parenting the organization in a sense where it feels like we're stopping at nothing to do whatever it takes to keep it alive. Or, you know, I think that especially as acting as the primary fundraiser for the school, that was definitely my mindset for a long time. And so when there was issues, the solution almost always felt like, well, we just need to raise more money. We just need to raise more money. We need more money. We need more money. And now, I mean, it's really, it really has been a hard couple of years, especially the past, I would say six or seven months have been really brutal. And I'm thinking back to some of those things and I'm like, you know what? We actually raised a lot of money. Like we, we I mean, we raised in the year that, that really got hard, our budget, 2018 19, the year that was the first time we started paying people late and really started to snowball. That's in the beginning of the end. You know, the year before that, 2017 18, which was already starting to get to be a hard year, um, we raised close to $700,000. That's a fair amount for a school of 140 kids. You know. A lot of money, yeah. A lot of money, and a lot of that was through major donors. Was through crowdfunding. we always did well on crowdfunding. And you know, you're like sweating to to, to fundraise 700 thousand the year after the year that was again extremely difficult year. Grew our staff grew payroll by 400 thousand. Three buildings. You know, we dropped in tuition dollars, and that year we raised 1.1 million was 1.2 million. So when I was in it, I felt like the only solution was to raise more. We got to raise more. Why aren't we raising more? And it's an extreme amount of pressure to be under. And now I'm looking back and I'm like, wait, that wasn't the answer. It wasn't just about raising more money. It's not like had we hit our goal of 1.8 million deficit that year, that things would be fine right now. There was something that, that wasn't working in that way. And and I think, and I remember actually talking about this back then with you and others. Think that money, in a sense, is the solution. You know, like schools. If only schools were better funded. Schools do need to be better funded, but that's not the only answer.
1: Yeah, there's there's definitely a balance. I can say I can tell you from running a business. I found that running a business where there's a certain amount of financial tension is best for the business. When, just as an example, let's say it's a product driven business. When the purchasing team can buy and pay for whatever there's money, whatever they want, they're going to end up making bad buys. But if they are forced to figure out how to spend a fine out of mind amount of resources, they'll inevitably make better buys. And I found that in running a business, it's often best to, there's obvious, you can't go too little and then you can't buy anything, but there has to be a fair amount of tension inside the business to push people towards Resourcefulness. And I think the same is true in a school. And the lie is always, we don't have enough money. We don't have enough money. That's the, the trap. So not the lie. The trap is if only we had more money, then we'd be able to do what? I mean, the school, the year that the school got in trouble, payroll ballooned by 35% and tuition income went up 2%. What benefit did this 35% increase in tuition give that didn't result in close to that in increased income from parents? So
2: I think that question, and there's a lot to unpack there and some of that is not for the scope of this call. But I think that that question points to some of the tensions around creating a school like this in Crown Heights. First of all, progressive schools in general, whether it's a school in Crown Heights or in hipster Williamsburg or whatever it is, there's usually a rub between what the school stands for and what parents want, right? Even parents who really are conscious and who are looking at school models and want a more child-directed education, usually they actually want something that's familiar to them or they know their kid is getting good grades or their kid is excelling you talk about Crown Heights families or from families, and then you have the whole dynamic of my kid, enough? are they answering the partial questions? Do they dive in first thing in the morning? There's so much angst around that so much. So when you want to make the product better and Lamplater's that year was under a lot of pressure to make the product better. Um, and you have preschool and you have a boys elementary and a girls elementary and you have a growing middle school and you have a, a high school. You're, you're, you're pulled in so many directions and Yeah. So you're under pressure. You want to make the product better. You want to still hold on to your progressive ideals. You're not, you're not, none of us were interested in selling our souls and and giving up the vision. And so it feels like in the moment, it's like, okay, yeah, gross. I think that when we consulted and spoke to a lot of schools over the years and I think that when you're small and nimble, you just tend to take certain things for granted, right? You, you take for granted that you have a waitlist, take for granted that you're relatively new and novel. So parents are seeking you out. You, know, you take for granted that a deficit of two, three, four hundred thousand is, is doable. And so I think there's a false security. And I've interacted with many other small schools that I feel like, they're in that bubble, you know. Like there's a really hard reality when you start growing, and and those truths are no longer there.
1: Well, I found out in t- I found out in talking to a number of parents the amount of times that parents would complain about the exact opposite thing. As an example, one was modesty of other parents. It's a silly example, but it speaks to the the class. So I think Lamplighters was not very tough on it, but did have certain rules around it. And some felt there should be absolutely no rules and felt that very strongly. And some felt that the school has to be much tougher. And that's on a relatively mundane issue as far as the education of the kids are concerned. So imagine how much more so the size of the class and whether it should have kids in the class that are on a, a different level or that have more needs, it becomes extremely, extremely difficult. And I think there is an inflection point where parents stop seeing the school as their school and start seeing the school as this independent entity that they get to um, complain about, right? For example, you know, when a company gets to a certain size, it's like, okay, we'll share a Netflix password, right? They're Netflix, Right, but if I don't know if it was like a little small homegrown business, we wouldn't say, "Oh, let's all share a let's all share a login." So there's something psychologically, I think, that happens with people when we're dealing with an entity of a certain size that it's not ours anymore. And I found that early on with Lamplighters, parents spoke about Lamplighters as their school, and over time they started speaking about Lamplighters almost, you know, as at a distance, and that could be. I don't know where that was created. Maybe you have a thought. Was it parents who just because of the size started seeing it as, oh, it's not my school? Or was there some sort of push or change in the school leadership itself as it got larger to say, hey, we can't take on all these requests from parents and just treating them a little bit more distance and say like, this is, we're child-centric, not parent-centric. Let us do our job.
2: It is a combination. I think um, one of the realities you're starting something new, is you want to be everything for everybody, right? So, landladers, like, yeah, of course, it's academic, it's super academic, yeah, secular and Hasidic. Oh, Montessori, no, no, it's traditional, no, it's 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 sabah. no, it's diverse. No, it, I it, I so badly wanted this thing to thrive and exist that it was like it could be anything you needed to be, you know. <laughs> and in a way, it was all those things, it, it, it wasn't disingenuous in a sense, but I think that was part of the, the challenge, is like some point have to commit, like, what are we really, and I think that that, that lack of commitment created a scenario where the parents were like, well, okay, if you're, if you could if you're all, all these things, well, then why aren't you actually all these things, and so then why isn't my child learning the way I, I think they should be, and why aren't they more ahead, and why, I think there's that, and I think that, look, I think this is something that lots of schools struggle with. I feel like we could have done a better job in, in many ways. Parents, they need to be brought in and it's, it's up to the school to bring them in. And it's not, it's not easy and parents, it's emotional, it's their kids. And I think the onus is on school leaders and if parents, you know, we need to really like listen to them even even if it's not comfortable for us. And sometimes having a backbone and creating space is really challenging i I, I, I feel yeah. like sometimes I feel like we could have done that better
1: I want, I want to um, go on to that the, the the point you made I want to drive that home because for me that was something that frustrated me big time with just the clarity of what it is like, right. what exactly am I supporting? For a while, it's like, oh, it's progressive, progressive education. Amazing. What does progressive mean? I mean, progressive from Russia from 300 years ago, from ratios of 35 to 1 with these green blackboards in front of the room that in chalk. I mean, there was a, there was a lot that's, okay, it's not that. It's progressive. Stop, stop bothering us. But uh, there were a few, two, or two questions I remember asking that I still never got the answer to, so maybe I can vent. <laughs> but one, one was a lot of parents complained about the secular education, that it isn't common core. It isn't common core. It isn't, it isn't up to common core, right? The standards in the community. And I kept asking, do, do we advertise that we're common core? Like I wanted to understand what the problem was. I said, if someone, if someone orders a pie of pizza and I remember giving this example and they say, um, why aren't there mushrooms with the pizza? Then I want to know, did we, say that they're getting mushrooms and then they didn't get mushrooms? Or were we not clear and they thought they were getting mushrooms, but they didn't get mushrooms? Because the solution is very different. And I kept asking, is are, is, is Lamplighters advertising Common Core? Why are parents making this complaint? Or are we not communicating that no, our progressive Montessori Alpidarco education isn't that? And I never got an answer to that question. What was the stated goal? And I think that yeah, there certainly was some wishy-washiness around what, um, what the school was trying to be everything to everybody. And the second place I saw that, somewhat similar but a little bit different, was I was asking, is the school a have – a, have a very solid Jewish education – with a supplement of an also a decent secular education or is it a strong secular education with a supplement of a good enough Jewish education? Because I got complaints you know hearing from parents on both sides of that saying, it's not up to our academic standards. And I was, which part of it is not up to your academic standards? Do they not know all of the Hasidic Rebbe's birthdays and their wife's birthdays, or do they not know math or a combination of both? And whatever it is, let's go back to what we said we're doing. And then parents on the front end would be told, hey, this this is what it is. And the response I got to that was, oh, we're both. We want to be amazing in a secular capacity and amazing from Hasidic. And I said, well, if you figure this out, then... I mean, you got to solve a much better problem than than this. You can go solve any problem. I mean, you, you can probably figure out how to fly from New York to France in 30 minutes if you can figure out how to get the best of both worlds in one school day.
2: So the first question, in the Common Core, I, to tell you that I'm not even so clear myself. Like I, I know that there were some subjects that we were or not, and I, you know, when it came to like the nitty gritty of education, like that wasn't my um, forte. The second question, I think, it was definitely our Wanting our intention to be amazing in both. You know, the, the teachers that we have were incredibly committed. Talented, wanting connect with the children. I think that Landlater is more than the academics it prided itself on the white space education. You know, like what you were saying before, it's not just about a happy child, but a child that feels seen, heard, valued, connects to their teacher, excited to learn, to make a choice, is independent, is organized, is resilient, is not afraid of failure. All of those things that don't necessarily show up on tests. So I think questions like that. You know, I'm putting myself back in that space. Okay, fine. Like, yeah, secular, Hasidic. But let, let, let's talk about what we're actually doing. Here. You know what I mean? Like the whole fascination around which subjects and were our kids doing well and what, which partial were they up to or not. I think what we all shared as educators at Lampleaders was this commitment to like, that's important, but it's not like the meat and potatoes. It's not the, the essential stuff. And that's what we were so committed to changing the paradigm around, and that takes a lot of time. I mean, you know, I think we did a lot in a decade. And I think had we been able to stay in the pocket, we probably would have done a lot more work around that. Getting the education better, yes. But ultimately pointing the arrow at like what's, what's truly important. And, and those are not things that really show up in, you know, tests or, or standards.
1: Um to, to flip some of the the questions around, you mentioned in your Facebook post where you're talking about this webinar that we'd be doing. You spoke about the uneven power dynamics between the founder and the funder, the fundraiser and the donor. Well, what did you mean by that? What were some of those things that you started typing and said, you know, I better this is what I want to say, but you know, I still wanted to write a check, so let me let me hit backspace before I hit send.
2: Um I at one point I used to do this in service for the for the staff at Lamp about development. You know, it's like this it's like this uh you know unknown thing, like what is fundraising, and so I just kind of give them an overview of what what fundraising a Lamp is is, what's our pitch, why are people why are people so interested in us, et cetera, et cetera, and I would kind of put this question out you know, wouldn't it be amazing? What if we didn't need to fundraise? like what if we could push a button where all of our all of our bills were paid and and there would be no need to ask for money? And we'd have a conversation about how actually, well, there is something so incredible about the dynamic of DACA, philanthropy and charity, that makes it worth it to have a gap. I think there's something about philanthropy, about the activity of building relationships in this way, like this dynamic that's really sacred. And I think it's imbalanced sometimes because there's the, fund, the fundraiser has to pursue, has to prove, has to please in a certain way has to engage, but also have a backbone in a sense, and also feel like, no, like, this is actually what we're about. We're not about that. Or, no, actually, this wouldn't be something that the school would do. Um, And I think that we had those kind of creative tensions um, quite a bit over the years of, of, actually, and I felt that you were really good about that. Like, you did not actually try to throw your weight because you were a funder. But I, I think that there's yeah there's a there's there can be there can be a power imbalance because it's such a powerful dynamic there can be a power imbalance and so there has to be a sense of um, respect and shared vision and shared values and if that is not in line then the bravest thing to do is to like disengage
1: from that dynamic to break the bone
2: break the bone right, right. you know like no, no funder should give money to something they don't believe in, and no fundraiser should put themselves out on the line and courageously ask a person who's not actually interested in supporting that vision. And people don't just want to give you money and not have any say. You know? it's like you're invested. It's your hard-earned money. You can make a choice to give it somewhere else. Of course, there's going to be a pressure pull. Of course, there's going to be checks and balances. Of course, there's going to be a sense of, well, wait, where is my money going? If there's not, something is off in the in the dynamic. And I think any good fundraiser will understand that, like how to balance the relationship, the authenticity, the respect around the dynamic, and also the fact that this person is making a choice and that's taking advantage of that.
1: Right. So I can say from mine, I, I didn't throw my weight around at the beginning, but I certainly did the last few years. I threw it around heavily. Um, but I'll I'll speak about the evolution of that because I don't think I was throwing to throw. What started when I first got involved, I loved the idea of this school existing even as an idea. Didn't it? It wasn't as important to me that this existed in Crown Heights for these particular kids as much as it was a school that was very very different inside a community like like Crown Heights that was doing well. And others can look at it and say, hey, we can do that too, or we should do that too. It didn't really matter to me that it was Montessori, to be honest. It was important to me that it was something. I remember one of the very early criticisms of Lamplighters. I saw it on a public website, maybe Schmace or COL or one of the other sites at that time. And there was an article about lamplighters and then a bunch of people saying how this is the Rebbe's way and the Rebbe wanted Yiddish and the Rebbe wanted... uh, I don't know exactly, right? Everyone speaks for the man. And one person responded saying, I'm actually an educator in lamplighters and we're not really Montessori or Montessori inspired. Maybe we shouldn't use the word or everything else. And I remember thinking then... Is whatever you are, just <laughs> stand behind it, say it. Like, why do we got to be wishy-washy on the subject? Pick something and then be prepared to defend it versus I'm kind of this, I'm kind of that, and we end up being nothing. So it didn't matter to me that it was Montessori per se, but it did matter to me that there was something that someone stood behind, a model or curriculum that wasn't uh, as flippant as this is the Rebbe school. And I thought, okay, Alatara is the Rebbe school. Great. Does that mean... We can do virtually anything in that building, and it's still called his school. Are there any values that come back to, is there any defense that has to be made of the curriculum, of the students, of eventually where they end up, of their happiness, of anything, any standards? So to me, it excited me that there was a school that was standing behind something and saying, these are our standards versus this blanket uh, Revis school. I like that. I like that idea because I felt like there's something to push up against. What kept me coming back repeatedly was hearing from other schools that they were, in fact, inspired by lamplighters. So, the repayment that I received for the money and time invested in lamplighters was when I'd receive an email from someone else saying, Hey, I'm starting up a new school and you're probably going to love it because it's just like Mm lamplighters. And I would respond back. When I did, thank you. But actually, what I was supporting in lamplighters was so that you're inspired, not actually about inspired to do that. That was the investment. So now that you already are, that school exists, you're not that anymore. You're not the original power source. You're just modeling that. And sometimes I'd give a little, sometimes I wouldn't. But the idea was that that's what I was supporting in Lamplighters. And therefore, there was no reason to throw my weight around because I didn't have much to say about Lamplighters as long as I was receiving that information that it's inspiring other schools around the world, which I was. And you saw that because you guys were getting tons of tours and you had an amazing reputation outside of the community. When things started shifting, was when a lot of parents or a number of parents started reaching out to me, complaining about the school. And then it becomes a very, very frustrating as a donor. You want to feel good about the money you're giving and and parents are repeatedly complaining about various aspects of it. And I said, okay, there's one of two things happening with these parents complaining. Either we're not explaining what we are well enough or we're not delivering a good product, but something is something is breaking down here. And when I, I pushed to get those answers, I felt like I wasn't getting clarity. I was getting uh, a little bit of a song and dance. And that's when I started throwing my weight. And I said, hey, if I'm if I'm in, then I got to be clear. And sometimes I wonder, should I have just pulled out and hung up the hat sooner and said, hey, I'm not getting the clarity I need. And had I done that, would it have been the best thing for the school versus staying in another couple of years and then saying, okay, this guy saved us from four payrolls. Maybe he can save us from another four.
2: You asked me that rhetorically. Can
1: I, can I lighten the mood a little bit? <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the very first dinner I attended, and then I want to get to other people's questions. You pushed me to speak. I think it was 20, 2012 or 2013. Yeah. I, I, couldn't bring my, I couldn't bring myself to, to speak because I had way too much stage fright. And I actually wrote this afterwards. I took it down. I'm going to read it to you. I wrote after the dinner, I gave my comments on it. And I said, I was not comfortable getting up and saying something at the dinner. Not my style to even allow my name to be mentioned, but I'm kind of proud to be associated with Lampetter. So I was happy to allow that. (laughs) When I was reading this, I was like, holy shit, a lot has changed. I (laughs) said, do you take a little credit or blame each time you see me speaking publicly? Oh,
2: totally. I totally, I I fell. Yeah.
1: Oh, the part of the story that I didn't add is that the very next year, you said, "Ellie, oh, you're speaking at the dinner, right? Wow. You pushed me repeatedly to speak. And I said, I don't speak publicly. Too much stage fright. I can't do it. And you kept pushing me. You kept pushing me. And finally, I said, you know what? It was right after that, that uh, Rosh and I started working uh, together he, in terms of him training me to, to speak. And I started speaking for JCW and others. So there is a certain credit that you take each time you see me.
2: Oh, completely. And I actually, I remember the first time we met face to face, and you were saying how you were looking for um, something to be passionate about. You know, you, you wanted a shift in your philanthropy, going to something that you could be passionate about. Has been really amazing to witness, in a sense. And I, and I, I do feel of watching over the past decade, and this, you know, you find and express many passions and become this this person in that way. So yeah, I do. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think I think Chaim Lipsker is listening in on this call. I'm not sure if he is. If he is, he can text. But Chaim knows me for a long time, and he probably knows this to be true. When I start originally, when I started um, giving, and it's always been a part of my life. I saw it a lot with my parents. Chaim is there. I saw it a lot with my parents. That even though we didn't grow up with money, it was very much part of their like in their DNA to give and to help and everything else. My older brother, when he started working, was uh, immediately extremely generous. And he found a lot of focus in, in Crown Heights and you know, help, helping a lot of different people in a lot of different creative ways. And he's a brilliant giver in his own right. And for me, what I found was giving was the only goal. I wasn't really focused on what I was giving to. So from about 2006, 2007, when I started my business, up until we met... My focus was more on how much am I giving? Mm. And I had these goals. And that's why I mentioned Chaim because Chaim and I have forebrained about this a little bit, but a certain monetary target that I wanted to give away. And it was useful in a certain sense that I had a goal that I wanted to give. I'll say the number that I wanted to give a million dollars away before I was 25. That was Mm. one of my goals when I started my company when I was 20. And I had this goal and it was a very good, ambitious target for me to have there. I think when we met, I was probably about 27 at that time a couple of years after that goal, and I still saw this pattern of, okay, I'm giving, but what am I giving to? And I set this goal for myself that I want to find causes, that I'm not just giving for the sake of giving, but I'm giving because I really care about where this is going, and I really care about the causes, and something that truly speaks to me. And Lamplighters was very much that, and JCW was very much that, and I uh, have a number of causes that are that. I'm, I'm much more of a passionate giver today than I was then, but yeah, that was truly the start of that lamplighters was the like what kind of lit that candle for me of giving and giving towards something that's meaningful and both have value. I'm not, there's a lot of value in giving and just giving. I'm not going to take anything uh, away from that. There were some questions that uh, came in. Should we get to some of those questions? Sure. Uh, One from a gentleman, Yassi Novak. He said, did your organization work toward using verbiage that was not polarizing to the Chabad community? This is such an interesting question. So did you try to refrain from using words like progressive?
2: Um this was a conversation that came up repeatedly about how to hold the revolutionary spirit and still be a Crown Heights school that very much um, held the identity and we wanted to rock the boat but we didn't want to rock the boat you know we it's it, and there was that sort of balance so um, in our outward-facing marketing, and I'm really proud of the work that we did in that realm. I think we were very unabashed about you know, revolutionizing um, education and progressiveness and needing a change and all that. I think within the community, we did try to be more careful to say, like, this is not a revolution; it's a restoration. Hasidic you know, education ultimately really is about you know, the, the individual. we were we we're, we're, we authentically, do respect the other educators in the community. But there was a little bit of a of a push pull over there. I don't think, though, that I don't think that's a game you could really win at, in a sense, because at the end of the day, Lamplighters was making a statement about about the need for change in the community,
1: and um,
2: and I think that that was really important to make that statement.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think what, what uh, the question brought up for me was the tension around, you're, you're trying to create a product in a community that can't pay for the product. Right. right? It, it costs anywhere from fifteen dollars to $20,000 per student. Let's say about, I, I think towards the end there's about $18,000 is the hard cost per student. And let's even say that 20% of that was mismanagement or 30% of that was mismanagement. You still have thirteen dollars or $14,000 hard cost, and you're not collecting that on average. I think lamplighters did very, very well getting somewhere around seven, dollars $8,000 a kid uh, in collected tuition, um, not not this year, but in the previous years. Well, what happened was that there wasn't enough money from the community to pay for that. And then you weren't going to raise money within the community by saying, but from outside the community by saying you're the same. So the messaging outside the community had to talk about the progressive and the change and the revolution. And right. inside the community, it could have alienated some.
2: So we had some of the most interesting donors, completely diverse. If you were going you know, put them all in a room, you'd be like, how are all these people supporting this school? And the story, I mean, it's an authentic story, but the pitch, the messaging in the broader world was if we can bring a progressive child-directed educational model to an insular, change-averse community, we can do it anywhere. And this community needs this, and by doing it here, it will trickle out. And we're we're training, we're consulting, we're we're doing tours, like the big, the big you know, bold message. And that's what people were supporting. But within Chabad, within Crown Heights, that's not interesting to anybody. I'm the opposite. You know, it's like, why are you even facing out into the world? Like, who really cares? And in a sense, they both had to be true because we had to be marketable to Crown Heights families. And we also had to get donation dollars from outside of the community. And I think that, you know, many, you know, all Jewish schools are broke in a certain way. Most communities have your one or two, you know, rich white man who has their name on the school, you know, and is basically bankrolling the community, with the for the of the school, right? Crown Heights does not have that. Crown Heights has a, many organizations competing for a few dollars, and many of those dollars are going out of the. As long as Chabad is putting its time and its talent and its attention towards outward-facing organizations— then our own schools, our own kids, are not going to get the kind of support that they really need. So we had to be innovative and really wave the flag when it came to fundraising to get the dollars from the outside. That was the fundraising pitch. And then on the inside, most families in Crown Heights cannot afford what it would cost to actually create the model that we were trying to make. And so there was always a tension, especially because we really wanted to have a scholarship fund, which you founded, Right. And wanted to be able to have this school be available for people of all, all kinds of socioeconomic backgrounds. So it's, it's like doing the impossible, right? How do you have the right product market fit in a community that can't even afford the product that you need to peddle in order to fundraise what you need to to
1: fill the gap? We, we can go on that conversation completely. But I think so many of these contradictions, not these not contradictions, but these tensions, these paradoxes that existed within lamplighters, that the same message could be so attractive to a donor, the same message that could be so attractive to a potential donor could be so repellent to a potential parent and how that you know tension was met. And if you ignored the tension, you didn't exist. It's easy to say money doesn't matter, but it does.
2: Also, that I we, know, we
1: saw what happened when teachers don't get paid. I mean, that was the, that's the beginning of the end of any school when teachers don't get paid.
2: Absolutely, and I think that it was authentic to us. That the it wasn't just a tactic to raise money. You want to change the world was authentic to us. We just had to amplify it in certain places and quiet it down
1: in other places. Uh, there were a couple of questions that uh, came in prior that I want to um, that I want to touch on, and someone asked over here, that is this part of the power dynamic that I'm asking you the questions now. Well, this is my webinar, so I'm you know, <laughs> I'm asking questions. But I'm <laughs> by all means, at the end of this, if you want to flip and ask me a couple of questions, I have no problem. Someone asked prior to this, uh, is there any future in Chabad education or do we now need to look at other options?
2: Well, I think there are many, many people who are really working hard to uplift and enhance Chabad education. And I think that there's a real irony that the Rebbe who was so focused on education that in many ways our schools are not better. And I know better is a loaded word because what does better mean? Um, it means different things in different contexts, but I'll just leave it at that, better. I do think that, that, like I said before, as long as Chabad is putting its emphasis on outreach over inreach, that a lot of the talent, the creativity, and the money that could and should be going to be lifting up our schools is going out. And I think that when you have now, you have the Balchuva movement and you have now the children of Balichuva, let's say like, like me, like you, right? There's a certain sensitivity and sensibility of education, not just being, not only being about Hasidus and the values, which are obviously so important and also skills. And the Babbage kids are coming out mostly out of our yeshivas and are not really having job skills. That's a huge, a huge lack. So is there a future of Chabad education? Of course. What does that future look like? I think it will look like lots of things, but there needs to be a concerted effort. And I hope that even though Lampladers is no longer open as a school, that at least we got into the heads of people in Chabad communities that there needs to be some sort of shift because it's not that we're just le- our kids are leaving in droves it's even the ones that are staying are disconnected in so many ways so this is like it's like a state of emergency right so the future of Chabad education needs to be much more intentional getting by on established schools that are also underfunded and overcrowded and trying so hard is not enough anymore.
1: You touched on a few things that have me thinking. One is a number of occasions when I tried fundraising for lamplighters, I encountered a few people who I felt like would have given money if it was a Chabad house. Like, oh, we we support Chabad institutions. Sure. Where is the Jewish day school? Oh, it's it's in Crown Heights. Oh, (laughs) that doesn't, that's, that we can't support. If it's in the middle of, I don't know, Montana, then that sounds like a great idea. And sometimes the Chabad kids get, Pushed out of the Chabad money, so to speak. And I think that there's a lot of money is indicative of the of the attention and the import we give to something, and just how many times the Chabad community itself has kind of looked over. I mean, I think now, you know, Maishi My- Fagelin, who I talk to every so often about Aliyah or Yeshua Wordy, who does his work in the business side, these are guys who said, Let me make a almost a, a Chabad house in Crown Heights to service, you know, Yeshua more, the people who go into business and, um, might she's more the people who are struggling in other ways, but let's give let's give some attention there, Chabad style attention. And yeah. oftentimes we're not we're putting our money and attention outside of the community. And the amount of money that for, that's made in Crown Heights that goes to shluchim out there, and I'm, i know some shluchim thing is great, but we should treat our own as a Chabad house as well. It shouldn't just be the ones that are spreading the message out to the whole world. Because over here you have the people, I mean, in the name itself, lamp lighters. Over here you have the people who are going to go out to the whole world and be those people. So that should be, that certainly can be a good investment. That was definitely some, something that frustrated me when I was reaching out to a number of donors is how to get people to look at Crown Heights as, as important also and not take it for granted. These guys, these, these kids are okay. They got it because they're, they're right there. Right. One of my rushes, she to say that the driest place is next to the sea. Someone asked, what advice do you have for an innovator and a visionary on how to transition and become the leader of a sustainable venture? And I think this dovetails with another question someone asked about, is it sustainable? Meaning is the model of having an education that costs $15,000, let's say, per child in a community that can't pay that, is that sustainable or do we just have to look at options that are less costly per student? It's a hard
2: question to answer. You know, I think perhaps with much lower growth, very clear who's it for and what's it for, you know, like you're know, very clear about what you are, what your why is, and who your product is for. In other words, not trying to solve everything for everybody. Having checks and balances, board with fiduciary responsibility, clear roles and responsibilities, like sort of the the, the, the nuts and bolts of the, of the business working healthily. I sure think there's a better chance like that. You know, and you still need donation dollars. If you want to be a school that's authentically open to people who have all kinds of ability to pay, you still need uh, people who are committed to support and to close that gap. Um, But I surely wouldn't want anyone to to hear the lamplighter story and say, like, you know what? It's just impossible. Like, there's no real way to create a progressive model. I think that there's always a risk, no matter what. But surely there's ways for that risk to be more
1: calculated. If I had to say, was it, was it a successful venture or not? On a whole, Lamplighters was a successful venture. In terms of, like we said at the beginning, the original stated goal of Crown Heights, A, it being a school that kids wanted to come to, feeling special and part of and that they matter. And the second is that this is a model that other people can look at. I think it did. It inspired a bunch of people. In some weird way, you have handed the baton. It's just not under the name Lamplighters. But there are other people pushing and one of the you know I mentioned that payout that a donor gets right mm-hmm. saying, Okay, my dollars are well spent. When I heard that I I heard at one point that pretty much every major school in Crown Heights, this is going back seven, seven years ago, six, seven years ago, when there weren't a lot of these other smaller schools in Crown Heights popping up, many of which were probably inspired by lamp these were, you know, the the old guard, right? The Bao Teshiva, the Altura. And that teachers from there, what I heard were teachers from there were coming and doing secret tours at Lamplighters to learn, but don't go back and tell my school that we're here. I just hear such good things. So that's a true story, right?
2: It's a true story. We get teachers and reviews from other sc- local schools. We're so excited to come see what we're doing. But it was hush-hush.
1: It was it that, that itself is massive progress. The fact that today, if someone went to Lamplighters, it wouldn't be hush-hush. And it should be clear what we started with. When Lamplighter started, at least when I got involved, 2012, 2013, I remember someone telling me, you know, Montessori, did you know Montessori was started by some Maria Montessori? Do you realize Maria, Mary, Christian, is that, it? is that what our Jewish kids need? And I'm like, you're going to have to do it. give me a better argument than that. But that, that was some of the thought that Lamplighter's was so against the community's needs, the community spirit, the, the religiosity of it. It was awful. And to boot, it was led by two women primarily.
2: Yes, that's another thing I'm very proud of. I think that that's like the the unspoken shift around lamplaters is being a female-led school, you know, primarily led by two strong women. And that definitely also raised uh, quite a few eyebrows. But I, I think that that lended a certain sensitivity in a sense. And in fact, when we there was a part of me that wished that we we hired another woman this year when we when we had a new head of school because I I wanted to keep that streak going. Look, I don't even know the ships. And it's really interesting now that Lamplighters is closing. It's like I feel like I've been sitting a very long shiva, and so you know all these people are coming out of the woodworks to share their sorrow or you know let me know that the school impacted them or the community in some way, and it's really really touching to hear and. And when you're in it, you don't think about all the ripples of it. But for me, as much as it really was and is about like massive change and revolution and paradigm shift and all these things, I just think about some of the kids that we had over the years. And some father just sent me this really touching email about how his son came as a four-year-old and left as a preteen and what it was like for his son to feel like he had a home. And this kid is a kid that Things got really hard. I had like five or six kids that I would really like think about to like maintain the enthusiasm or conviction. And this kid was one of those kids. And in a way, it's even harder for me to really imagine this. It's almost easier for me to imagine the communal shifts. But I'd like to think that the shifts that we made for the kids in the school are far more massive and important and interesting and nuanced and beautiful than even what we did for the community.
1: Yeah, I have a number of those and I also had a nephew and niece who were in the school and I'm not sure if their parents would agree, but you know how you have some kids who you say, okay, they would they, they could manage in a one on thirty environment. I was one of those. I, I was I wasn't happy in school, but I was able to manage and learn in that type of environment. One on twenty-five, one on thirty. And then others simply can't. And I had a nephew and niece who were lamplighted for a while and one of them, I definitely had the sense that he would have got swallowed up in a traditional environment. And I think that lamplight, lamplighters helped him through those formative years. And now that he's in a more traditional school, I think it has helped. At the same point in time, there were, I think when you go to a progressive model, one of the things you open yourself up to is criticism simply because it's different. And in the sense that if everyone's doing something, even if it's not working, you don't have to answer for it because everyone's doing it, Get right. it. And one person says, hey, I'm just trying a different route because everyone's been driving down, down, driving down the street and not getting to their destination, so I'm gonna try this one. And instead of people saying, oh, maybe that one will work, we know this one for sure doesn't, the, the question becomes, well, why are you going there? Why are you going that way? And is it working? Are you there yet? How do you know you're gonna be there? And there becomes a lot of pressure in that direction. And I found it when, when my um, sister and brother-in-law sent their kids there, I found that a lot of that pressure was from others in the community who are questioning their own decision, and then it turned into pressure on them. Why are you sending your kids to Lamplighters? Right. Are they really good? Are they doing things really well? You know who? You know who said this? Um, have you ever tried a uh, a Beyond Burger?
2: No, Beyond
1: or I mean. uh, right the, it. the chemical one and everything else. So the found I think it was the founder of Beyond Burger or one of these. He said. He said, You know why my business is really tough? He said, When people eat a burger, a regular meat burger, they throw their condiments on it, their pickles, their ketchup, they put in a thing of bread, bite it. That was a great meat burger. So when they want mine, they sit there and eat it slowly. They take it by itself, like, Does it taste like meat? Does it not taste like meat? If you compare me apples to apples, I'll be fine. (laughs) If you throw me in a bunch of condiments, I'll be fine. But doing that is really, really tough. And that's what I feel like happens when you do something wildly different. People really want to make sure. It's a good thing; it pushes you to get the best product. But then, at the same point in time, is sometimes stepping back and understanding: hey, people are subjecting you to scrutiny that they're not to the competition. That they're not doing to the competition.
2: That's so. Um, so when I re- wrote my goodbye letter, I really wanted to mention the parents as being courageous. And this is something we spoke about at Lamplighters. You know, choosing a school like Lamplighters was making a statement. It was an act of courage, even when the school was more established and you know we weren't so you know, out of the box in certain ways people got used to us, it still was an act of courage because exactly that parents were getting scrutinized, their kids were getting scrutinized, and it 's almost like when there's something different out there, collectively, everyone gets a little bit anxious, right like wait, what am I making the right choice for my kid? What does this say about the education that I got when I was a kid? Wait, are my rabbis wrong? is It was really hard for people to have to stand in that and defend that, and I think that when when there was moments for people when their kids weren't doing as well as they hoped, or there was gaps, or it just exacerbated that tension, exacerbated that discomfort of like, wait, I just made a really big choice. It was everything.
1: Yeah. I can tell you when my, when my sister chose to do that to send her children there in the early days of Lamplighters, there was scrutiny within my family and in the wider community as well. I know that it was a question that kept coming up. Of, Is it good for your kid? Are they doing okay? Is it, but what, how do they handle this? And then everything gets attributed back to the school as well. It's, if someone's doing better or worse, it's not maybe the child, maybe the specific teacher. It's this is the school and this is the entity and they're not doing a good job. He doesn't know the down in four languages. Right. right. The school sucks. Right. If you have to describe, someone asks this, how would you describe the appropriate and healthy dynamic and relationship between donors and the it- institutional Leaders, board of directors, and school leadership in a formulaic school. I I guess it's that whole question of the board, the donors, the parents, all of that relationship. Is there is there an ideal framework for this to work in?
2: Yeah, I think it starts off with a very well articulated vision that that people buy into. That they, you know, if there isn't if there isn't buy in on a unified purpose and vision, then there's no the relationship will never work. I I love Simon Sinek. Start with why, like. The why has to be there and it has to be shared. Then I think there needs to, you know, there needs to be a really clear sense of what is everyone's role here? Like what is the role of the board? And how do they know if they're doing a good job? Do they have clear roles and responsibilities? Is there fiduciary oversight? Are they ratifying a budget? Are they bringing donors to the table? Are, Are there contracts? Then the leadership has to know what are the edges of their power? What is completely under their domain and what is not? How do they know if they're doing a good job? What latitude do they have in making decisions? Do they have the resources that they need? Parents, you're making a financial commitment to a school. Your dollars matter, right? Your, your feet matter. If you walk away, if you pull out a month before school starts, all these things, it has an impact on the school. If you're not happy, that matters. This is a relationship dynamic. The community, it matters. The community, even if it's not financially supporting the school, the community needs to rally around the school and see it as an important part of the broader community. I think that when we had charity campaigns and we did incredibly well in cat funding, and I think that was a testament of, of the community, Crown Heights community and the broader community, seeing this work as important. Okay. I may not send my kids to lamplaters, never, but, but there's a purpose here. And I think when those, when, you know, when it's a well-oiled machine in that way, and everyone has a role, and there's checks and balances, the vision is at the center, and there's respect and communication, and there's flow, I think that makes for a healthy organization. When that's out of whack in any which way, then eventually it will erode. If, If the balance of power is off, the balance of accountability is off, if the balance of just, you know, organizations need to run on on a group of people sort of holding
1: things in different ways. It sounds to me like you're talking about one of your failings specifically, because let me explain to you why I say that. If you're the founder, right, then that light, that, that clarity, this is what you're buying into. That's on you, right? I mean, it can be a collective. The, the collective is buying into one person's vision, not forming a vision together.
2: Well, I do think that there's space for people to form, maybe not form like the essence of the vision, but to form like, what does this mean to me? How does it look like in the community? Um, how does this vision unfold over time? I think that can be a conversation and not necessarily everyone is invited to the table on that, but, but there should be a presentation. I, I, I think
1: th- it was Jeff Bezos who said, be stubborn on vision and flexible on the details, right? So I think what you're oh. talking about is that, yeah, people can buy in on the details of how to get there, but what we're talking about is, right, customer-centric company that every six months or a year wows the customer that's what we're talking about that's the vision can we create a a a company that sells everything that continuously wows the customer i don't know if that's his exact vision but let's say something like that and then sure yeah i'll i'll bring everyone into the table on how we get there but uh, i'm not changing the vision
2: i think that My failing, what I've learned is a vision can be strong. It can be compelling. It can be contagious, but the vessel, the Kaylee has to work too. The details of it have to work. It has to be healthy. And I was not effective in that part of it. I surely tried in many ways. And I think I had moments of success for sure. But in Being able to enact a system where all those parts work together in healthy ways, I was not successful. The onus wasn't completely on me. I don't think the onus is completely on on any one person, but that definitely was not a place where I shined. And I think that, you know, if I look back, like I said, there's like particular moments where I really wish that I had been much more boundaried. I had been able to say, no, this is not sustainable. This, this this will not help our school in the, in the long run. But I wasn't able to. I didn't. And you know, if I want to talk about regrets, that would be one of my biggest regrets.
1: My goal of that question was not to put pressure on you as much as to highlight for people listening what the what, what the potential solution is when creating a school, right? When it sounds like a collective vision, it becomes somewhat vague. How do I get everyone to buy into a vision? Well, that's not everyone's job to create the vision. And certainly as a donor, I didn't want that because in, in a couple of different instances, I've tried, not, not in charity, but in business to somewhat compel t- someone towards a vision. And I found that it doesn't work. Either I'm buying into someone's vision and supporting that or I'm right. not. Right. And then my job is to support it and maybe put certain guardrails guard and maybe add certain details, maybe poke holes. But the overall vision, what this person is trying to do, is, the, is that clear. And I think what happens sometimes as a, as a visionary, as a dreamer, as a founder is we become, you know, people say failure is not an option. And this has become this, I don't know, this like nice little cutesy phrase failure is not an option. But failure has to be an option because if it's not an option, what, what ends up happening is we sacrifice ourselves too much along the way in order to get there. We say, okay, it's not an option. It's not an option, but at what price? And then at the end of the day, and then we've sacrificed everything entirely.
2: Absolutely. By the way, I, you kind of backed off over there. I'm totally comfortable um, owning those parts where I feel like I could have done it differently. You know, like I, that's been part of my, my work. Wow. I mean, just over a year now in intensive therapy, but really in two, two years of that, it's been like hellish and this past year of super hellish of, of being able to look at this and, and to go from, through a process of like what you're saying, failure is not an option. There's no way this thing can ever fail. Like, I don't care what that I have to do. This thing is surviving. And then going through a process of like, wait, actually, Failure is an option, and there's there's some really hard stuff to deal with here, and actually dealing with it closing. And so I feel like owning those parts of the narrative that are mine is part of my healthy. Just trying to find closure in a sense, in a healthy way, and accepting, which is really hard for me to accept, that there is unfinished business, and that's okay in a sense, you know, because this is is like part of my work in actually honoring lamplighters you know if i were to just be like yeah whatever these things happen or finger pointing or you know moving on or whatever i'm not i don't feel for myself actually really honoring what
1: it is right yeah i mean part of the reason for backing off also was that i think i stated at the beginning i'm not looking to turn this into a blame game but also that i was hoping that the point was made that the one individual has a vision it doesn't i I think that some of where lamplighters got in trouble was bringing in different consultants and trying to figure out what the mission statement is and vision statement the vision statement was there before anyone came in maybe we we need to help finding the right words but it's not a collective group effort to figure out why the founder started the school
2: no 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 if anything the i the organization has its own soul and there are people who are just in with its soul, in a sense. And then how do you communicate? Correct. Yeah, 100%.
1: Exactly. Right. Yeah, I think, right. I think that was one of the struggles. I, 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 rem- I remember what I wanted to say before, because you were talking about, uh, within the community, pushing something that was very revolutionary. And I wanted to go on this little rant about activism, because I consider mm-hmm. myself an activist, and I think you consider yourself an activist. And probably the two causes where I've taken that most pronouncedly in the... Jewish community, um, maybe not a third, but the first two was a lamplighters pushing this as a school that, you know, people can look at. And at first it was viewed as something that can hurt the community. I don't think that's the case any longer. The second was JCW. And the third, I, I've gotten much less pushback, uh, but really talking about and being more open about talking about pornography and addiction and things like that. Uh, the first two, I got very heavy pushback on. And I think as an activist, right, activists often come with very pure intentions and pure causes, right? Uh, improved education. Who doesn't want improved education? Right? Children shouldn't be sexually abused. Who doesn't want that? Uh, addicts should have a place to call home. But what happens when an activist wants to make change in a community, it's on the activist to send the message very clearly that they're not trying to tear down the community. They're trying to cut out this specific issue with the scalpel. And oftentimes where activists fall apart is that the community doesn't feel the love and the community or the country or whatever it is that they're trying to change. is not feeling the love from the activists. All they're feeling is a threat that if I let you in on this issue, you're going to tear down everything I have. And that's hopefully a message to, to activists. If you want to be successful, approach it with love. If the community gets the message, if the country gets the message, if the people you're trying to change gets the message that you're coming at it with a scalpel and you just want to take out that one issue, they may resist, but eventually they'll invite you in and they'll be happy you were there. But if they get the sense that you're trying to destroy the whole down thing, then you're going to get pushed back and your goal will not be met. And the only goal, the only thing you'll go to sleep with is feeling a little bit better that you're morally, more morally righteous than this horrible group of people that you've discarded. True change happens by a loving scalpel. I don't know in that
2: Yeah,
1: 100%. And I think the same thing with you. You know, there were obviously things you wanted to change in the community, but that worked. A, you weren't impatient about it. And B, but the community got the sense that you have a tremendous amount of respect for Chabad, a tremendous amount of respect for the Rebbe, a tremendous amount of respect for his message. And at the same point in time, you were saying, hey, we can do better on this area. Right. Whatever you say about Chabad, whatever you say about Rebbe, whatever you say about those things, our kids should not walk out of school hating Judaism. They shouldn't walk out of school hating their teachers, hating the system. And if we're doing that, that has to change. We can, we can ask questions. And once those listening know that you're not there to tear down the whole damn thing, they'll invite you in, which they did. And the community to a large degree embraced you and, and and Montessori became a, I mean, lamplighters became one of the schools in the community. It was considered a community school. It wasn't 2017, 2018. By that point in time, it was, a, it was a school.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that really resonates. And not not just that we love the Rebbe, we love Chabad, but like we love the Rebbe's message so much that we so desperately believe that a school like this has to exist because you know, I know for myself, learning from a young age, I went to Chabad schools, I went to a small cheder in Minnesota. When you were, sort of drilled with this message that every person counts, right? Like you have the power to bring Mashiach, you, like you, 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 you are like this incredible force of energy, then that's amazing. That's that's intoxicating. That's incredible. Of of course, our kids should not not just hear that. They should have the tools to actually actualize their individuality, right? It was almost like Every year, by our in service, we play the 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 sikh of the Rebbe talking about what it means to be a lamp And I think like half the room was always crying because it's like the sense of like when you hear the Rebbe talk about what you have to do, you know, whether the person is in, in the sea or in the desert or whatever it is, but you have to go out there and you have to like give of yourself, uplift somebody else. Of course, education has to look like that. It has to look like whole individuals who are uplifted. So I think that when when we were in conversation with Bella Lubavitch educators that came out where it was like we're on the same team guys you know and i do also think about yes i'm an activist and yes there's there are many issues that kind of get me riled up um child sexual abuse was definitely one of them and i was like really happy to and honored to have gotten involved in some of the work that do as well over the years and i think now it's like what is you know what is the kind of activism that actually works and finding that balance between being like loud and bold and saying the things that people are afraid to say, but also like focusing on, on the positive side, like what we can do together, how every step matters. How it's not just about tearing down the system, it's actually about coming together and building. And so when I think about like, the next evolution of myself, in a sense, I'm, I'm thinking about that balance a lot, coming out in a
1: positive uplifting way. Yeah, I think it's also sometimes, from the activism side, I think it's sometimes also looking at the benefit of those same characteristics in other areas. So, for example, uh, when I started on the child sex abuse fight, I was more angry than, than loving. I was pretty upset. I, I was frustrated that I hadn't got the answers I needed. I was frustrated by being ignored and as an adult, not as a kid, by being ignored and pushed to the side to some degree And I over this, this issue. It was minimized in a lot of ways, and I was like, "Hey, if this is happening to me, it's going to happen to others much more in a much more pronounced way." And you know, just having been a donor to certain organizations and things like that, I was like, "Wow, this is this is a pretty big deal." And I first came at it with anger, saying like, "This community is so messed up. How can they be this way?" Eventually, as I worked on the issue more and started to learn about more and more cases, I learned something important, and I think this translates into other areas as well. What I realized was that. Wherever you go, in the most healthy community in the world, therapists, the sons of therapists who've done all the work on themselves. In a very, very healthy society, incest is still going to confuse people. There's no good way to deal with something when a brother molests a sister or an uncle molests a niece or vice versa. And in a Jewish community, every case has the complexity of an incest case because the teacher is not just this teacher who you only know from school. Your kids are also friends and you know, your, your son is, is married to the cousin of this person. Everyone knows everyone. And the community feels responsible to each other. And that's beautiful nine times out of 10. When a child is born and you have your meals lined up for the next 30 days, when a kid, uh, when, when someone passes away and suddenly a million dollars is raised for, for those people, or during coronavirus, the amount of people who are getting support from Hutzala or support within the community, it's unbelievable. And I'm sure a lot of people would have loved to be part of the community on that day. Because it really is beautiful. But on the day when a child is abused, now there's an incest case. And it's really, really confusing. And when I understood that point, it made it a lot easier for me to approach the community, not as a community that's messed up, but a community that has a certain set of characteristics that are really working in one area, but very dysfunctional in another area. And then trying to give some clarity on saying, OK, even though it feels very confusing, there have to be certain parameters set up that everyone can follow. And I think it's true as well with schools. It's for very good reason that Jews are stubborn about or religious Jews are stubborn about their education. There's a lot of threats to it. So mm-hmm. coming at it has to they have to be patient, has to be with love. And see the, the job is on the activist to do that. Other questions you want to ask me? I did
2: want to ask you what made it worth it for you. But I, I got the sense that I got was about lamp players inspiring others but maybe i'll ask it just again more poignantly. like what especially the last the last year where i got really witty. you know what what made it worth worth it for you
1: yeah the answer is different at different points um what made it worth it for me obviously in the early stages is not why i stayed around towards the end but there, there was the phase where I was really getting a return on investment, then became the phase where my ego got involved. And I was like, hey, my name is all over this. I really want to see this succeed. I don't want to have a public failure. I would, I would call parents. I was trying to recruit people to the board. And it's like, wow, it's so nice that you're doing this. And it's not even your kids. It's like, it's more important than my kids. It's my ego. <laughs> right? I'm trying to, like this is my, my name. It's not coming from a, a, a great place. It's coming from, you know, that's where it was coming from for a time. And then once it was clear that Lamplighters wasn't, um, even though it was going to make it, it was already a little bit of a, it, it was out there in public as going through major dysfunction and my ego was less safe. Uh, then it really became just a clear goal. We got to get through the year. There's no way we're going to let these kids. And, you know, we, we can't guarantee schooling for the next five or 10 years, but we got to do everything possible to make sure that mid-year, these kids don't lose school. And to me, yeah, we had to sacrifice certain standards. And maybe that wasn't going to be perfect. And maybe some teachers had to be let go that uh, would have been better to be in the classroom. But the goal was survival through the end of the year so that the children have that that option. And it got really rocky, obviously, through coronavirus and how are you going to make this happen. Our tuition nearly dried up 70, 80 percent. I think in in one month there, it was reduced by 70, 80 percent. But there was a clear goal, just get through the end of the year for me. And that's what kept me. It wasn't a vision. It was a conviction. i got to do this. There's kids there and there's no way that they're not getting school through the year. I just know how damaging that can be to be out of school for several months and other schools in the community weren't going to gobble up 150 kids. Right. Knowing also that a lot of the children were in lamplighters because they couldn't make it in a regular school. So to call a regular school mid-year and say, hey, can you take my child? And hey, by the way, I'm the parent <laughs> who left the mainstream school to go to the progressive school. Yeah, it wasn't gonna be, it wasn't gonna go between.
2: Do you imagine yourself getting so heavily involved in other school? Like, do you have school fatigue? Would you ask different questions? You know, if someone were to come to you right now, ask you, you
1: know, get behind my school. If my if my kid school came to me, I wouldn't be so involved. Um, You know, it's a, it's, it depends. It's it was timing. I I, I I like getting involved. I consider myself very conservative in business, very risky in charity. So I, I wanted do stuff that aren't being done. I want to look at things that aren't being looked at. I want to know that I I like the kind of causes that may not work. I don't want to donate to, they're great causes, but I don't want to donate to APAC. I don't want to donate to, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the, donate. Good. I, I give money to APAC. I'm saying on a major scale, like this is where I want to be involved and, and be on the board of a major organization that hopefully will be around for 50 years and have tons tons of support. I don't suge- mean to suggest that they don't need support. Support isn't vital. That's not the measures. It's almost, they it may not exist. This cause may may not, No one may. someone may not be paying attention to this if we're not doing this. And that's over the years what has spoken to me. But the truth of the matter is that I don't know that all of these decisions are completely made by me in that way. Like if I was fundraising for myself, I wouldn't know how to write the email. You
2: wouldn't.
1: There's a, I wouldn't know how to write the email. I wouldn't know how to make the call. Right. right? I think there's a certain part of it that's just fate that's meant to happen. There's a, a timing thing and there's a certain feeling. And some days you leave the office feeling confident and you're going to make money for the rest of your life. And some some days you leave the office feeling like uh, I can't understand how I've made any money and I feel useless. And You can get the same email on two different days, and that's just pure luck on when that relationship starts. So I I don't know that I have a good answer.
2: I remember, you know, we we had these moments with you as a donor, with other donors of, you know, a lamp lighters miracle, right? Like somebody would give. We hated that term. We hated that term. So I love that, and I and I feel like it got it got a bad rap over time. It became like almost like as if we were like shirking responsibility or like hiding or avoiding the, the, that term right that's what it became
1: but we had yeah, th- this yeah. idea that we're always going to be saved we could be as irresponsible as we need to be because there's always going to be a lamplighter's miracle show up
2: so i that's saw I, that's why i hated it i saw i actually saw and this is again going back to the thing i was talking about the di- the of philanthropy we actually saw like amazing like people would give and then they'd call back and they'd be like oh I just got an order or I just like, you know, this amazing thing happened. And that was really beautiful. To Those were the lamplighters. Well,
1: I think as a business person, you see that always, you know, I've, I'm in the habit of telling rabbis sometimes I said, do you know why this is set up in this way that rabbis have to come to business people to ask for money? Surely God could have figured out a different way of doing it. I said, because if rabbis didn't talk to business people every once in a while, they wouldn't necessarily believe in God, but all business people have to, because you just see the chance. And it's, it's things working together and the the pure, I mean, you know, I, I've seen it even in the last few months, you know, coronavirus, certain things have dried up and disappeared completely for industry right. and then other things popped up out of nowhere. And you see repeatedly to, you know, you can call it luck or you can call it the hand of God, but that's a business person sees that in their endeavors regularly, how things just kind of dovetail right. together. And I would say even running a school has that capacity, mm-hmm. but sometimes a rabbi with their head in the books all day, you can forget about God. So. <laughs> Cool. You have to yeah. talk to a business surgeon to get this That's for sure. Well, There's one question that intrigued me. It seems like the model of a smaller, higher quality school financially doesn't work. And he mentions three schools, Array from Grove and Lamplight is all closing. So what's the scale of numbers and how do you move to get that number? I can answer the question from a donor perspective. If someone was saying they wanted to start a school like this, obviously you're going to be losing money, right? Let's say it's $10,000 per kid that the founder has to fundraise. The measure that I'm looking at is not per child, but it's how much money could this individual raise. You see it with shluchim. Some shluchim are capable of running a deficit of $2 million. Others are capable of running a deficit of $100,000. They're both essentially doing the same thing. And Sometimes it could be not only the shliach itself, but the circumstance, the community they're in, right? If they have a, a Chabad house in a place where the average a person is making $50,000 a year. It's much different than if you were sent to a, a place that has millionaires all over. Whatever that number is, that's what I care the most about. What is that number that this person has proven that they can raise? And then if they can go into that deficit that they themselves have proven that they can raise that number, then I'm somewhat comfortable. But if they're going into that, that's that, that's where I think, I may be wrong, but that's where I think lamplighters hit its limit. The problem wasn't per kid. The problem was how much could Yochebed raise? And when it started getting up to the $2 million numbers, you couldn't raise. And it couldn't raise as a combination of factors. It's the cause plus the person. You couldn't end up the, the, the place you're in and everything else. You couldn't raise $2 million. You hadn't proven that. And you weren't able to the year you needed. You couldn't raise $2 million on the back of lamplighters with the story of lamplighters. But you were able to raise a million dollars. So to me, if there were 80 kids and the deficit was 10 grand a kid... I believe the school would be able to run. You try to get up to 160 kids to 10 grand a kid. Now you're dealing with a $1.6 million deficit. And I don't know that you can raise that money.
2: So I don't fully agree because I think that's the danger then of creating a whole organization of the talent and the student. And that's where, you know, that's where I think it's not, it's not sustainable. It may work. It may, it may be paying its bills, but it's not sustainable. If organization lasting is based on the particular talent or reach of any one individual, an educator, a fundraiser, a teacher, then the organization is not sustainable. There has to be a lift that is a healthy lift that actually can make sense. If your if your budget is fifty percent tuition and fifty percent fundraising, that's a lot. Now it's true there are people who could raise two, three, four million. That's true, but is it actually like healthy for an organization to have that
1: kind of a lift? I don't know. Let me qualify that answer. It depends what kind of organization, right? We're speaking very specifically. If I wouldn't say the same calculation for a, a standard community school, a JCC, or something like that right? Or, other oh, tower in Crown Heights. A school like that has to look at it as a per-child basis and be supported by a board and everything else. But a Chabad house style, or someone who's going to build up a progressive school, you're digging yourself into such a deep hole. A shliach goes out to run a Chabad house. There is no financial model that this works. It's crazy. It's lunacy. It's an absolute crazy idea. Let me pick up and go to a community and try to make this happen. So the only way it could happen is on the back of the individual. A shliach can't outsource his fundraising to someone else. The shliach figured out how to do that. You haven't seen it even with with some of the bigger ones, right? Where, yeah, they can have a few shliach work under them, but they can't have, um, oh, I have figured out a model that works. Let me just duplicate it across America. We haven't seen that happen. Why not? I think it's because there are certain models of schools, right, or maybe a family-owned restaurant. There are certain businesses probably that are like this as well where you need the founder's blood, sweat, and t- tears to make that happen. Financially, it's never going to work. The only thing that we can look at is how much can this shliach and this founder raise? All I can say as a donor, is the way I would look at it, I would treat a Jewish school, progressive, in a community, in a firm community, the same way I would look at shliach. It. it has nothing to do with the idea. It has nothing to do with the economics. It has to do with the passion and commitment of this one individual and how much they themselves can raise on this cause. I
2: hear that. I feel it's like... As long as people can't afford a more boutique school, then until you get economy of scale, which is very, very hard in a progressive school, school will be... Tougher I, I,
1: in a lot of ways, economy of scale doesn't exist. No. Because the economy of scale here, you have to get through that hump. You know, when you're running out of your basement, it's cheaper than you're running out of the storefront.
2: Right, exactly.
1: Right? Those first few humps are more expensive to get over, not cheaper. When you're doing it and you have your hodgepodge of volunteers yep. and you yourself doing work that's unpaid. And how many years did you do work at letters that was unpaid? Your group of people who will do anything for you, then you can get stuff done cheaper then the economies of scale only happen after that second wave. So you move out of the basement and you move to that first storefront, so you move to the little place. And then from there, from step one to step two is more expensive. But now the next step to go from there over that hump to that big building, and now you have four or 500 kids, that's the economy of scale. But that first hump is way too difficult to get over.
2: Very hard. We tried to answer that by trying to create a consulting arm, trying to leverage what we were building inside the school to affect hour change and make money. And in some ways we were successful in that, but that kind of goes back to what we were talking about before. Like, who are you really like, who's it for? And what's it for? Is this a school that's focused on the kids that are in the building or is this a school that's focused on being a lab school and, and other educators and projecting out that's very hard to maintain.
1: If I was doing it all over again, that's the first thing I would jump on. I, I know now that that's impossible. And that was pitched on to me early, that it can be both a model school intentionally, not as a model that people follow, but as a model that that's the intention, plus a school um, for its own students, too ambitious.
2: Funding, or you're like, you're for profit, you're VC back, whatever it is, like, you know, I don't, that's, that's really hard. It's very, very right. hard. I mean, really, it would okay. be amazing if all schools could band
1: together. If certain schools band it together.
2: All schools could down together. I think that there's, I think that there could be a solution there in sharing some resources. And I don't know if it's the solution, but I, I wonder
1: if, if there's possibility there. I think these kind of schools will continue to be small, will have to continue to be small. But the be, the benefit and the payout will be exactly what lamplighters did is that it influenced and affected all of the schools in the community and much wider than the community. It started off hush hush where some teachers came and said, I'm hearing things about it. Let me see. And then eventually people said, Hey, let me learn what, are, what, what are they doing that we're not doing, that we're not doing right? Why are certain parents gravitating to this message? And it raises the, the bar of the other mainstream schools. But over there, of course, they're limited by a financial model that has to work and they can afford maybe a deficit of $2,000 a kid. And when you have a deficit of $2,000 a kid, then you're starting to get up to like, large enough that your parent body and your, and your past student body, they can start giving to campaigns and they can, you know, there's enough people there to raise that money. But at Lamplighters, we had 150 students, oh. right, maybe from, I don't know, let's say 90 families. And you're trying to you're trying to raise two million dollars. It's too ambitious. Not possible. What's next for you?
2: Oh, I'm not really sure yet. I'm doing some consulting work. I'm doing some writing. I'm a, in a teacher training program with female you know, cats and meditation, which I'm really loving. I'm really um, into like stuff around transformation, all transformation, gender equity. I don't know. We'll see. I really don't know. My first summer not working in ten years. It's weird. <laughs>
1: Yeah, sometimes you need that vacuum to figure out what it is that, that speaks to you. Yeah. Someone asked if, uh, do you ever think you guys can work together again? I don't know. We'll see. I have I have, I have a bunch of clauses I can use help with. So you just yeah. you just tell me when you're ready for me to ping you. All right. So on that note. I appreciate this. It was good. Parting advice to anyone following in your footsteps.
2: Allow yourself to just dream, like really be unafraid in those dreams. Don't critique yourself. Don't second guess. Just In your mind, allow yourself to dream really big and then just think, what is it actually going to take to get there? Like dream big and map it out. I would also say that there are those things that we avoid saying no to because they feel so painful in that moment. And those are the things that usually over time become much more painful to undo. So Saying yes is powerful and so is saying no.
1: Yeah, that's good advice. My note, this is a question that came from someone parting or someone following the footsteps. So I'm, I'm going to assume following the footsteps in the sense of giving. So my recommendation is just to get deeply involved. It was a completely different experience for me, giving from a, a distance, and which I still do. Most, you know, most causes I'm involved in, I don't, obviously don't get involved. In this way, and then to really get passionately involved with something. And the fact that I speak today is the direct result of being involved in in lamplighters. It was something that I learned in that way, being involved in that work and caring about a cause. And then saying, okay, maybe I do want to get up in front of a room full of people and talk about why I care about lamplighters. Maybe I can articulate this, and maybe I can get other people on board with it also. And uh, what can I say? A star was born. <laughs> You're kidding. But the, uh, the, the bug was, I, I, I found the bug. And sometimes you don't know until you do it that you have the bug. And Rosh knows this better than, than anyone if, if he's still on here. Rosh has trained a lot of people for their first speech, a lot, who thought they could never speak, who thought they could never get over this fear, who thought they had nothing to say, who thought they didn't have a story. And now they can't shut up two hours in and they still want to talk. They love the sound of their own voice. They love the impact they make through their voice. It's very powerful. For me, it was very powerful just to get deeply involved with the cause and see what happens, to say yes, but not say yes just with my hands and write a check, but to say, you know, with both feet and jump all in. And I feel that I'm also much better equipped. I learned a lot from Lamplighters in terms of other organizations and what questions to ask, especially the last couple of years, really looking at it, the struggles of it. And, you know, ever since Dove Cusman, we haven't spoken about too much on this call, but I left Lamplighters and he brought me back into the fold. And I learned a lot from him in terms of, you know, his experience managing a budget and managing the school and managing a board and what that role should be for me, all of it was a really cool experience, not just in terms of giving, but giving with both feet in that way. And I encourage those who are giving, keep giving, and also find the cause that you really care about and jump all in with both feet and see what happens. And even if it fails publicly like this did, and your ego will be a little bruised, in my case, I feel like a much better person for it.
0: Well, there you have it. My conversation with Jochevet Seidov, friend and founder of. Lampbladder Yeshiva. I truly hope you enjoy the episode. I'm really curious to hear once again from anyone who was not familiar with the school but stayed through to the end of the episode. What did you get from it? And are there more um, applications than just specifically to this school, this community, the Jewish community? So we'd love to hear from you. And stay tuned for more. In Search for More has some uh, good conversations we plan to put out there in the next couple of weeks. Please support this podcast. Give us a rating. If you feel like it should be a five star, give it a five star. If you feel like it should be less than that, give it that and tell us why you think so. We're always looking to improve and share it with someone who may benefit. Thanks so much. Have an awesome day.